At this time, kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 947. Romans 12. We're going to be talking today about the church, what it is, and how we should view it. Romans 12. Let me open in prayer before we study God's word. Father, we do pray that your spirit would now be poured out upon us. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might rightly understand and appreciate your word. Give us all repentance and faith. Help me to preach as when preaching the very oracles of God. And be glorified now in this time. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Romans 12, reading verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and, acceptable to, uh, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. May God give us ears to hear his word. It's sad, it's unfortunate, but it's true. In virtually every volunteer organization on the planet, the proportion is roughly the same. 75% of the work done by 25% of the members. 25% of the people do the heavy lifting to keep the operation functioning. They turn the lights on, they sweep the floor, they make the coffee, they set up the tables and chairs. The other 75% passively benefit from their work. Now, do you think that is a good proportion, a wise proportion, a healthy proportion? 75% of the work done by 25% of the members. If, say, you owned a small business, would you be happy if 25% of your employees did 75% of the work? Of all places, should 75% of the work of the Church of Jesus Christ be done by 25% of the members? If you know your Bibles, you know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. All of us who believe on the Lord Jesus are, according to Ephesians 2.10, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you have been saved too, in the words of Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 
Realize, brothers and sisters, God's goal for the church is not 75% of the work done by 25% of the members. No, his vision is 100% involvement. Every member ministry, every believer serving in the strength that he supplies. And Lord willing, that's our vision here as well, 100% involvement. And while realistically we know that that's not going to happen this side of heaven, that is what we should aim for, 100% of us using the gifts that God has given us for his glory and service to the church. Well, it's with this that we introduce our sermon this morning on a vision for the local church. I'm going to argue this morning that you should look at the church not as a television program, uh, not as some sort of professional production, not as a big corporation, but really more like a family. A family where every member rolls up their sleeves, pitches in, helps the family to function and to grow. That's how you should look at the local church. This sermon is actually the next installment in our annual vision series, and hopefully you're seeing a certain logic to this series. Uh, we began several weeks ago by talking about personal Bible intake, and more specifically about scripture memory. Remember those sermons? The thought there was that every believer ought to be communing with God daily through his word, and one excellent way to do that is memorizing scripture. Then we talked about a vision for the Christian life, and I made the claim there that a Christian is somebody who has taken up his or her cross to follow Jesus in discipleship. That's the definition of a Christian. Three weeks ago, we talked about the family, and we argued there that every family, every Christian family, ought to view itself really as sort of a little local church. Each father viewing himself as the pastor of that little local church, where brothers and sisters are encouraging one another in the Lord, fathers and mothers encouraging their children, children hopefully encouraging their fathers in the Lord, growing together toward God and godliness. That's a Christian family, and as you can see today, we come to the local church, and hopefully you're seeing a series of concentric circles here. You individually, how that affects you and your relationship with the Lord, then your family, then the church, and then from there, the entire world. And to consider this topic today, a vision for the local church, I'd like us to consider three questions together. Three questions which will hopefully equip us and inspire us to, again, view the local church not as a corporation, uh, not as a TV show. Uh, God forbid that you look at this as like my TV show that you come to watch. No, the church is a family where we're growing together and serving together. Question number one, why should I serve in the local church? I mean, life's already busy. I've got a lot on my plate. I've only got so much time, so many resources. Why should I consider devoting more of my time to serving in an expression of the body of Christ? That's our first question. Before we get too deep into this, we should probably nail down what we mean by service. If we're assuming a different definition here, it's not going to be helpful. So what do we mean by service? Let me give you a simple definition. What is Christian service? Well, it's out of love for Jesus, inconveniencing yourself for the good of others. It's really that simple. Out of love for Jesus... You're not doing it out of pride, you're not doing it to show off, you're not doing it uh, really at the end of the day for a paycheck, but out of love for Jesus, you're inconveniencing yourself. You're doing something that you probably wouldn't do under normal circumstances, but for the good of others. Could be a non-Christian, could be a Christian, but that's what really Christian service is. Now, when you define Christian service that way, there are a zillion different ways to serve. I mean, everything from sweeping a floor to singing a song, from mowing the lawn to teaching a Sunday school class making a meal for a sick family to leading a small group, giving somebody a ride to church to helping plant a church, setting up tables and chairs to serving on the diaconate, making coffee to changing diapers in the nursery, praying for our missionaries during Wednesday night prayer meeting to becoming a missionary yourself. All of these and a thousand different more examples fall under the broad category of Christian service. 
Anytime that you, out of love for Jesus, inconvenience yourself to serve others, it's service. Now, at this point, I really feel compelled to say a quick word to those who might, for one reason or another, not be able to do much of what's typically called service because of health issues. You know, maybe you're elderly, you know, you really can't set up a lot of tables and chairs. Or maybe you're nigh bedridden, and you know, you, you can only come here once in a while. Are you still saying that I ought to seek opportunities to serve? I am, but maybe expand your vision of what we mean. Something as simple as praying regularly for your church family is an opportunity to serve. Uh, now with the technology that we have, you know, sending texts, sending emails, those can be, even if you're entirely bedridden, you can still think of ways whereby you can use your opportunities, your gifts, uh, to bless others. I remember hearing about a lady that was literally bedridden. I mean, she spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week in bed. But she understood that God calls Christians to serve, so she started brainstorming, how, how can I do this if I'm stuck in bed all day? She ended up devoting about eight hours a day to prayer. That's the way in which God called her to serve. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to spend eight hours a day. I mean, you know, obviously work this out between you and the Lord. But don't hear what I'm saying this morning is only applying to those of us who are healthy and robust. Uh, because really, again, there are a variety of ways to serve. Having said all of that, let me give you a number of different reasons why believers should serve their local church. I have five of these. I'll go through them quickly. But be it this congregation or any expression of the body of Christ, why should we serve? First, serving others is a command. We are commanded to serve by Almighty God. And if you believe that you ought to obey God, you ought to believe that you should serve. Romans 12, 11, we read this just a moment ago, but we are commanded there. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Titus 3, 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. God has commanded you to use the gifts, talents, skills, opportunities you have to help others, to inconvenience yourself for the good of others. And the fact that God Almighty has told us to do this really ought to be reason enough. But quickly, here's a second reason. Because serving glorifies God. Serving glorifies... You want to glorify God with your life? You don't necessarily have to be a missionary, pastor, preacher, though God might, and hopefully is calling some of you to that. But something as simple as, let's say sending birthday cards to everybody in the congregation when it's their birthday, or faithfully changing diapers in the nursery, or, or making, your, making sure you're here early to uh, straighten up the Bibles and the pews uh, in, in the chairs in front of you. Those can be ways of glorifying God. Listen to 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one speaking the very oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now get this, here's the reason. So that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here's a third reason to serve. Serving others is one purpose for which you were saved. Jesus saved you. If you are saved today, if you're right with God through the blood of Jesus, he saved you not just so that you avoid hell. Yes, that's part of it, but he also served or saved you so that you would serve one another. I know well, I already re read this verse, but again, Ephesians 2.10. This is the reason why you exist. We are his workmanship, and the idea there is this beautifully crafted piece of artwork. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word workmanship, but it's not just something that's been cobbled together. Think of like a master uh, woodworker creating this beautiful thing. That's you and me in Jesus created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're definitely not saved by our good works, praise God. We're saved by the blood of Jesus, but we are saved for good works in order to do them, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
I love that thought. There are good works that God has for you to do that he plotted out from before the creation of the world. Here's 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Again, this is why we who have been saved have been saved. They themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God saved you by Jesus' blood in part so that you would serve, so that you would inconvenience yourself for the good of others. So that then when we fail to do that, be it out of laziness, be it out of busyness, be it out of pride, fear of man, whatever, we really are failing to live up to one of the reasons why Jesus died and rose again. Quickly, a fourth reason. Serving others is a way to imitate Jesus. If you know anything about the Gospels, serving others is a way to imitate Jesus. The night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, you'll remember, the disciples, they weren't really thinking about the cross. Jesus was, but they weren't. They were thinking about who's the greatest. You remember this? And listen to what Jesus said to rebuke them in their debate about which of us is the greatest. This is Luke twenty-two twenty-five. 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now keep that in mind. We're talking about Almighty God who takes on flesh and blood. I am here to serve. That's why Jesus came to earth. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said this about himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the major reasons why Jesus came to earth, to serve us by dying for our sins. The Bible is crystal clear that you have been made in the image of God. This is why we're here, to know God, to have a relationship with him. And one of the things that that means is that we were created to serve him and to serve one another. And yet we all know that from the very beginning we go astray and we sin, we rebel against our creator. Uh, we basically say, God, I know you created me to serve you, to serve my fellow man, but I really don't want to do that. I'd rather just serve myself. I'd rather live my own way. I'd rather go my own way. So instead, we turn from God to worshiping all our various idols, everything from sticks and stones to cars and our cell phone. That's who we are by nature. Now, because God is holy and righteous, he could have condemned us for that rebellion. He could have said, and think about this, you guys don't want to live up to the reason for which I created you? All right, be eternally lost. Be eternally cut off from me. But the glorious news of the gospel is he didn't. He said, I love you even though you are sinners, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide a savior for sinners, a savior who is my son. God himself became incarnate. Big word means he took on our flesh and blood, our nature. He's given the name Jesus. Jesus born as a little baby. He grows up and lives a perfect sinless life, the life of service to his fellow man and God that we should have lived, but then he dies on the cross. And what's going on on the cross? He's bearing the judgment of God in our place. He's serving us by redeeming us from death, sin, and the devil. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that he is who he claimed to be and to demonstrate that what I'm telling you right now is true. And now in response, Jesus is calling you, turn from sin, embrace my loving leadership, be saved. It's really that simple. Stop running from God. Stop trying to live your own way. Stop rejecting the reason for which you exist. Turn to Jesus. Rely on his death, death and resurrection. Be made right with Almighty God. 
That's the invitation, and I, too, would invite you right now, if you've never put your hope in the Lord Jesus, to do so right now. Right where you are, turn from sin. Stop running from God. Stop saying, I'm going to live my own way. No, turn back, repent of your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, and be saved. Again, serving God, serving our fellow man is the reason why we exist. In our sin, we all reject that, but we can be forgiven and we can be restored back to that position we are created for if we'll but put our hope in Jesus. So trust him today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said this morning, would like help trusting in Jesus, talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. Let me give you one final reason why we who believe should serve. Serving others is actually a way to serve Jesus. Serving others is actually a way to serve Jesus. You might think, you know, wouldn't it be great if Jesus were still walking around on the planet? You know, think back to the apostles' days when Jesus was walking around Jerusalem. I'd love to just go up to him and give him a cup of cold water. Well, you can do that by serving others, and especially your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You remember in context what he's talking about? He's talking about visiting those in prison and helping those in need. As you did it for those, you're doing it to me. Even if you had no love for other brothers and sisters in Jesus, even if you despised them in your heart, which obviously is a gross sin, you should still serve them if you love Jesus, because by serving them, you're serving him. Now, one final point here before we move on. I do want to stress that the New Testament does teach that you are to serve your brothers and sisters in Jesus before you serve the entire world. I know that many people find this surprising, but there is clearly an emphasis in the New Testament on serving other brothers and sisters in the church before you serve the entire world. You'll remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Do you remember? It doesn't say if you have love for the world. It does not. It doesn't say if you have love for the poor. No. Though all of those things are good, it's just not what it says. Instead, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, something unusual happens, something supernatural happens when Christians love one another with that family love. When Christians who are different, say, ethnically, economically, socially, when they're able to love one another sacrificially only because of the common denominator that they have in Jesus, that really shows the world that something unique is going on here. And God will use that to draw people to himself. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Of course, we're called to love absolutely everybody. We're called to love our neighbors, co-workers, or even called to love our enemies. And yet there's no denying that in the New Testament, there is this priority on loving your brothers and sisters before you love all the people in the entire world. Practically speaking, what this means is that I think you ought to prioritize opportunity to serve in your local church uh, than, say, serving in the larger community. And when push comes to shove, you ought to prioritize, again, your local church. In light of all that we've said here, I want to ask you a few questions. Are you committed to serving God in his church? Do you really see this as a priority? I mean, maybe think back to that proportion I gave you in the introduction. 25% of the work is done by, or pardon me, 25% of the people do 75% of the work. Which percentage are you probably more likely in? The 25 doing the heavy lifting or the 75% benefiting from their work? Is our church stronger or weaker because of your involvement? 
And I do think you ought to look at your motives here. I mean, God is concerned with motives. Do you serve, again, out of love for Jesus, or you're trying to show off, impress others, display your spirituality? As we contemplate service here at Trinity, these are questions I'd encourage you to consider. Let me give you a second question to think through. How can I use my gifts in the local church? So you're convinced, yes, I would like to serve. Yes, I see that this is something God wants me to do. Yes, this is something that I think would glorify God. How then can I serve? Now, we're going to think through this using two big categories. Two big categories. First, we're going to talk about natural abilities, natural talents, and how we can use those to serve. And then we're going to talk specifically about spiritual gifts and what those are. Now, we don't generally think this way, but I would encourage you to consider your natural abilities, natural skills, natural talents as gifts that God has given you in part to bless the church, to serve others. These are gifts, skills, abilities that you'd have even if you didn't know, know the Lord at all. Uh, you know, let's say you're gifted at cooking. We want to carefully not put that like in the spiritual gift category. You know, that's not the same as, say, the gift of faith or the gift of teaching or something like that. But nonetheless, you can certainly use that to bless others. You see this idea of somebody using a non-spiritual gift to bless others in a woman that uh, we, we love to say her name. Her name is Dorcas. Dorcas. Uh, she's recorded in Acts chapter 9, but listen to what Acts 9.37 says about Dorcas. And when Peter arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and the other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Remember that passage? The idea was that she just used sewing skills. But through them, she so blessed her sisters in Christ that at her first funeral, they were weeping. You actually see this sort of thing going on throughout Scripture, using ordinary talents, ordinary skills to serve. Could be hospitality, could be shearing sheep, could be making tents, could be baking bread, could be preparing meals, waiting on tables, uh, again, sending birthday cards or anniversary cards. Using ordinary human talents, ordinary skills is a way to serve God and to serve your neighbor. So I'd encourage you, what talents, what skills, what abilities has the Lord given to you? How might you use those to glorify him, particularly in his church? I mean, do you have singing or musical abilities? We'd love to get more people plugged into our musical, music ministry. And if that's of interest to you, talk to me, talk to Stu, we'd love to get you plugged in. But again, think beyond there. Do you have mechanical abilities? Uh, might we together save some money and instead of taking, you know, getting our oil changed at Quick, quickie lube or something like that, maybe come together and help one another in that way. Do you have artistic abilities, literary abilities? Are you good with a hammer and a saw? you have a knack with, for working with children? you good with graphic design, building websites? Do you enjoy meeting new people or connect well with college students? There, there are a zillion different opportunities and uh, examples here, but what natural skills, natural abilities has the Lord given to me, things that really have nothing to do with my relationship with him, but I could nonetheless use them for service? Well, that's one category. Let's talk next about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, what are these? Well, the Bible actually talks a good bit about spiritual gifts. Just to give you one passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want, to, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. If you'd like to look up and study the spiritual gift passages, maybe write these down. They're Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Let me say that again. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. You might read those carefully for more guidance here. Now, what is a spiritual gift? It's kind of a big question. 
Obviously, if we get this wrong, we're going to run into trouble. Uh, let me read to you author Kenneth Birding's definition of a spiritual gift. I think this is helpful. He says, according to the contextual evidence of the letters of Paul, the so-called spiritual gifts should not be viewed as special abilities to do ministry. That might be different than what you've always thought. Rather, they should be viewed as the ministries themselves. Every believer has been assigned by the Holy Spirit to specific positions and activities of service, small and large, short-term and long-term. These ministry assignments have been given by the Holy Spirit to individual believers, and in turn, these individuals in these ministries have been given as gifts to the church. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, if that's a little different from how you've always thought about spiritual gifts, you might check out that book, by the way, What Are Spiritual Gifts by Kenneth Birding. I think you'll find it helpful. Now, pulling together some of what we see in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, let me emphasize three quick things. First, a spiritual gift is something given by the Holy Spirit. It's given by the Holy Spirit. It's not a natural capacity you had just as, as an ordinary unbeliever. Second, spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the church. To use the language of Ephesians 4.12, they're for the building up of the body of Christ. And then lastly, every believer without exception possesses at least one spiritual gift. So regardless of how long you've been a believer, regardless of how mature you are in the faith, every last believer in Jesus has a spiritual gift. And what that means is that you have a responsibility to figure this out and then imagine how I'm going to use it to bless the church. Now that raises the obvious question, how can I figure out what my spiritual gift is? What is the Holy Spirit calling me to do? Now, there used to be these things called spiritual gift tests. I remember back in the like 90s and early aughts, there were these spiritual gift tests that you take that were kind of basically personality tests and you'd check off all these different things and then they were supposed to calculate at the end to tell you what spiritual gifts you have. Uh, anybody ever seen those? Uh, they're not as popular today as they used to be and to be honest I'm kind of glad about that. What I discovered is that typically people answer not what they're actually gifted in but what they'd like to be gifted in. You know nobody's going to say like I love you know plunging toilets. Uh, but we do typically like to be in front of people and like, like to be appreciated and whatnot. So there, there is that tendency. And they do seem to be, again, more like personality tests than spiritual gift tests. So in general, I encourage people to avoid those. Instead, my approach is this. Get involved in as many ministries as you can. You know, basically try your hand at everything. Uh, you know, even if you think, like, I'm not gifted at that at all, maybe give it a try and see how it goes. To be totally honest, that's how I wound up in front of you today. Uh, many, many years ago, I was at a little tiny country church, and they didn't have anybody to teach one to a Bible study. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm talking to a church like 25 people, and they're like, uh, we, we want you to teach Wednesday night Bible study. I'm like, what? what? Huh? No, no, that, that, that's not me. I, I, don't, I don't know what. But they're like, no, you got to. And I didn't really have a good reason not to, and my wife was like, you should give us a try. And I'm glad she did. So I gave it a try, and what I found out is it kind of went okay. People were like, you know, you, you seem to make the Bible clear when you talk about it. So I tried it again, and I tried it again, and then what happened? The pastor was going to be away, and the uh, elders were like, we, we need you to preach. And I'm like, preach? Are you kidding me? I don't know how to preach. But there, again, I gave it a try, and one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I've been a pastor for 20 years. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to wind up in the pastorate, but what I am saying is that you might be gifted in something that you don't even know you're gifted in, but what you need to do is to try different things, and then you discover, wow, I didn't realize I connected so well with kids, or I didn't realize I, I found such a fulfillment in this or that service. You see what I'm saying? So try as many different ministries as possible, and then ask yourself questions like this. Which ministries brought me unusual satisfaction? You know, are there ones that I just, I, I felt like I clicked in that, that, that I was made for this? Ask yourself, which ministries did I experience some fruit in? 
Were there ministries where, you know, people just, they, they were like, the, the lights came on. And good teachers can kind of tell that, you know, there's a difference when you look out and everybody's like snoring or playing with their phones. And then other times where they're like, wow, you, you know, have you experienced that kind of fruit? And then lastly, and most importantly, which ministries were accompanied by congregational affirmation? And I'll tell you that this is probably 90% of the equation. When your brothers and sisters stand up and say, you know, you really are gifted for this and that, uh, that means more than 100 spiritual gift tests. So ask yourself questions like that. I think that'll tell you a lot more as to how God has gifted you to serve in his church. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, this sounds great but I still need some more specific involvement. How could I get more plugged in here at Trinity? I'd like to serve, but I just kind of don't know how to do it. Well, let me give you a couple suggestions. First, if there is a ministry that you'd like to get more involved in, talk to somebody who's already involved in that ministry and offer your help. You know, so again, say you want to play a musical instrument or sing or something like that, talk to Stu. I'm sure we'd love to get you plugged in. Say you'd like to serve in the nursery or teach one of our children's classes, talk to Cassie Patrick. If you're a man interested in teaching adults, talk to me. We'd love to get you plugged in. But if there's a ministry that you know you'd like to get involved in, talk to somebody that's already involved and see how you can get plugged in. Let me give you a second approach. Underneath the chair in front of you, you'll see that little sheet, How Can I Serve at Trinity Baptist Church? You might as well just grab that now. I see some of you doing that. Feel, go ahead and grab that. If you attend here... Before, you know, if you've attended here for a while, you've seen that sheet before. All this is is a simple tool to connect people with resources, with ministries that they might get involved in. And, and here's what I'd suggest. Maybe don't fill that out today, especially during my sermon, but maybe take it home, pray over it, think about it, and then bring it back next week or Wednesday night and put it on Kyle's desk. Uh, we'll then be able to more easily plug you in to different ministries. Let me give you a last suggestion. Don't be afraid to create a new ministry. Don't be afraid to create a new ministry. Uh, sometimes you go to a church and you think, oh, they don't have this or that ministry. They must not want it. Uh, chances are that's probably not the case, especially in a church our size. Uh, it's probably we don't have the manpower to make it work. And just maybe the Lord has brought you to this congregation to make that ministry happen. So ask yourself, is there a particular area, a particular people group I'm burdened to reach? And what burdens has the Lord just given to you? I mean, are you really burdened for college students? We used to have a flourishing college ministry. Then the Lord took those people off to Fort Wayne, which God in his sovereignty does, uh, but we'd love to reach out more to college students. Uh, do you have a burden for uh, the, the, the what, uh, I'm sorry, forgive me, uh, the uh, Afghani population that came to town? You know, again, maybe that's the Lord working to create a ministry there. Uh, do you feel gifted to teach English as a second language? You know, think through, are there burdens that the Lord's given me, and might we create a ministry there? I heard a while back about a lady that just in the providence of God, her house was located next door to a Buddhist monastery. So she created a ministry specifically to Buddhist monks to reach them with the gospel. Realize a number of the current ministries that we have right now began this very way. Somebody had an idea... And they talked to me, and we made it happen. And now we have a ministry, that some of which have been going on for many years. Just on this last point here, if you are interested in creating a new ministry, just make sure it is in line with our mission to make disciples. Uh, obviously, we don't have time and resources to do absolutely everything. You know, we're, we're probably not going to be teaching ballet classes here or something like that. You know, God bless you if you're into ballet, but we just, you know, we're limited in what we can do. So imagine, is there a way that God might use this ministry to evangelize unbelievers or to edify believers? Just maybe ask that question before we 
have the conversation. Almost done, but let's talk about a third question here. How can I make the local church more central to my walk with the Lord? We're going to wrap it up with this question. How can I make the local church more central to my walk with the Lord? And I'm going to try and be as specific and as practical here as I can. First, if you're not already a member, formally join the local church you're attending. And that's probably this one, unless you're visiting. And if you're visiting, we're delighted you're here. Maybe consider joining the church you typically attend. But if you're not already a member, formally join the local church you're attending. Now, I won't belabor this since I talk about it often, but formally joining a local church is a way to demonstrate that you're not ashamed to associate with Jesus' people. It's a way to properly submit to the pastoral leadership and the discipline of the body. It's a means of having greater service opportunities. It's a way to encourage other Christians to take up their cross and follow Jesus. So for all these reasons and more, if you're not already a member, formally join the local church you're attending, and if you want more information about that, talk to me at the door. I'd be delighted to explain further. Second, attend as many services as you are able, but especially the Lord's Day worship service. Attend as many services as you are able, but especially the Lord's Day worship service. Now, I totally understand that church attendance does not equal holiness. It grieves me to think that there will be many people in hell who probably attended church more frequently than I ever will. There is no definite connection there between how often you're in a church building and if you know the Lord. However, church services, times when the church gathers, are times when we fellowship together, we learn God's word, we worship and praise God. These are times when the church comes together to obey the words of Hebrews 10.25, which says, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you check our weekly church e-newsletter, and if you're not on that, again, talk to me, talk to Kyle. We'd love to get you the e-newsletter. But in that e-newsletter, we lay out every week the different services offered that week. And typically, there's, what, four, five, sometimes six opportunities to get involved? Plenty of opportunities. So as you're able, attend as many services as possible, and especially Lord's Day Worship, what's going on right now. Third, if you're a member, make a point to attend business meetings. If you're a member, make a point to attend business meetings. Now, it's no great secret that business meetings are not well attended. Um, I, think, I tried to guess, but we probably have about 25% of our membership at our business meetings, which is really not ideal. And I'll admit, I mean, business meetings are not as thrilling as, you know, watching Wheel of Fortune or something like that. And yet, nonetheless, I would encourage you to view church business meetings as not a waste of time. In fact, they're actually a type of a worship service. During business meetings, we discuss and decide on the direction our church is going to take to reach the world with the gospel. Uh, we take in new people into membership and sometimes have to discipline those who have gone astray. In church business meetings, we talk about our finances and how we can better steward what God has given us to make disciples. So if you don't already do so, make it a point to attend our church business meetings. And obviously, participation and even respectful pushback is more than welcome. Fourth suggestion, develop true friendships with others in our church. Develop true friendships with others in our church. Now, it is fearfully easy to be alone in a crowd. It is fearfully easy to attend church here regularly and not actually know anybody, to not actually open up to people and to share what's going on in your life. And yet, as I've tried to argue this morning, if the church is a family, if it's a community of brotherly love, what that means is that we get to know one another, we open up with one another, we let down our hair with one another. We do that so that we can love one another more fruitfully 
and so that our gospel enjoys more credibility. When the world sees that our church really is a community, a family that loves one another, that will lend strong credibility to the gospel that we preach. So in light of this, I'd encourage you to show hospitality to one another. Get together outside of our ordinary services to eat meals together, drink coffee together, read and discuss books together, develop true friendships with folks in this congregation. Make it a family. Along these lines, here's a question I'd encourage you to think through, and maybe discuss this in your family around the dinner table this afternoon. But when does a church service end? Ever thought about this? When does a church service actually end? Is it at the end of the sermon? Is it when we sing the final song? Is it at the benediction? When does a church gathering actually conclude? Looking at the New Testament, it really seems as if the fellowship, both before and after a church gathering, should be looked at as part of the church gathering. I know that sounds so obvious, but when we think of church services, what do we typically think of? We typically think of the formal order of services of things that we're doing, like song, scripture reading, prayer, song, and, and then when that's done, the service is over. That's how we typically think. But again, in the New Testament, the fellowship, and I'm talking about like ordinary believers, encouraging one another, fellowshipping with one another, admonishing one another, talking about what's actually going on in their life so that they can pray intelligently for one another, that's actually part of the church gathering. I read Hebrews 10, 25 earlier, but I need to connect it to 24. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and notice what's going on when the church gets together. It's not just singing, not just hearing sermons, not just baptizing people, though obviously all of those are precious and wonderful. But what does Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 say? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So going back to our earlier question, when does a church service end? It, it's not at the end of the sermon. It's not at the end of the final song. It's not when I say the benediction, uh, but it's when the last car pulls out of the parking lot. That's when church is over. So what that means practically is that in our interactions with one another, you know, let's say immediately after this service, talking around the coffee machine, in the hallway, out in the parking lot, Think through, how can I pray for this person? How can I encourage this person in the Lord? Are there things that they, they need to hear so that they can continue to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Don't look at the fellowship before and after as irrelevant or as times to just kind of complain about the government, but as actually part of Christian worship. Quickly, a couple more. Fifth suggestion. Pray daily for your brothers and sisters in this congregation. You want to grow in your love for this congregation? You want to really get more sort of enthused about what's going on? Pray daily for your brothers and sisters. Hopefully you all have a church directory. If you don't have one, there are a stack of them out in the foyer there. Here's what I recommend. Just pray for one or two families every day in your devotions. Just keep your church directory with your Bible, you know, where you keep your devotional stuff. Do your Bible reading, do your prayer time, but in your prayer time, pray for one or two families. Then the next day, pray for one or two more. And the next day, pray for one or two more. And then what do you think you do when you get to the end? You quit? No, you go back to letter A. You, you, you get the idea? Do that for six months, and I imagine you'll find your love for this congregation growing exponentially. Quickly, sixth suggestion. Give sacrificially to enable your church's ministry. Give sacrificially to enable your church's ministry. Now, I praise God that you are, without any exaggeration at all, the most generous church I have ever been involved with. I have never had to browbeat people. You know, I'm actually kind of surprised how rarely I've needed to talk about giving at all. We've almost always had more than we need, even during those crazy pandemic years. And I thank God for that, and I 
commend you for your generosity. But nonetheless, the New Testament does teach the principle of sacrificial giving. And there is a difference between generous giving and sacrificial giving. They don't necessarily always line up. In 2 Corinthians 9.8, Paul writes this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving to make ministry, and I'm talking about financial, regularly giving a portion of your paycheck to preferably a local church to make ministry happen, that's really like basic Christianity 101. Uh, you know, simple things that we ought to teach brand new Christians, uh, you know, Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, um, you know, baptism, what that's all about. Really giving regularly to your local church ought to be one of these basics. Christians understand that we can't obviously send missionaries all around the world. We can't even keep the lights on here without Christians generously giving. I thank you for that, but maybe evaluate your life, evaluate your budget, and think, are there ways I could give more generously, more sacrificially to make the work of the gospel happen? One last suggestion. Prepare throughout the week for corporate worship. Prepare throughout the week for corporate worship. And this, I think, is really the key to enjoying Sunday mornings. I know I've talked about this before. If you find Sunday mornings just like boring as dust, that's probably not entirely because we're doing a poor job up here. It probably is in part because you're not doing a good job preparing for Sundays, if that makes any sense. To illustrate this, I talk about the Puritans. If you know me, I love the Puritans. But if you read about their worship services, it blows your mind. You're like, this, this is like, I'm not talking like a foreign country. This is like the planet Mars. It is so dramatically different from how we do church today. You're like, how could this happen? To illustrate what I'm getting at, without exception, sermons by the Puritans were about an hour long, sometimes two hours. I don't think I've, I've never preached close to two hours. Um, and I, I don't know how, how you could, do, you know, you got to use the bathroom once in a while. So I don't know, you know, it's there's this one guy in particular, he would preach for four hours and his congregation would be held captive. Like not literally, but like figuratively. They were, they were captivated by what he was saying for four hours. Pastoral prayers were often 30 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes long. Singing was all done a cappella and most of them only sang psalms. You hear about that and you're like, how on earth could, you know, I believe God's promise that Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it, but seriously, through this kind of stuff? Well, let me read what J.I. Packer says about the strangeness of Puritan worship compared to how we do things today. And I'm not saying at all we're going to two-hour sermons. I'm not going to two-hour Yeah, that's not happening in my lifetime. But listen to what he says, because I think he's got some wisdom here. He says, if you feel that the austerity of Puritan worship was such that it's hard to imagine how anyone's heart could really be caught up in these long prayers, singing of psalms, and quiet listening to long sermons... You must remember that preparation of heart for worship was part of the Puritan discipline of life. If you remember uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer, uh, they actually started getting ready for Sunday church Saturday afternoon, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They started slowing down, thinking, like, what's God going to do in our hearts Sunday morning? Just a suggestion. They really believed that every day, but on Sunday, or pardon me, Saturday evening in particular, it was very important that you should spend time with the Lord getting yourself psyched up really eager and earnest in anticipation of what you're going to receive from, the, from God dawning the following morning. That, of course, has always been the real secret to spiritual worship. The people who get something, something for their souls out of public worship, have always been the people who come to public worship hungry, eager, expectant, looking to the Lord to give them something with hearts already passionately involved in the reality of communion with the Lord. 
You see, it's when you've been walking with God Monday through Saturday, communing with him, listening to him, sensitive to his spirit, that then Sunday makes sense. But if you've been ignoring God all week long, why wouldn't Sundays just feel boring and irrelevant? So you can do simple things here. I'd encourage you to put some of these things in practice, especially if you're a father. See what you can do to implement some of these in your household. But get sufficient sleep Saturday night. I mean, that sounds so common and simple, but I don't think I can think of a single sermon that I have felt like convicted to the heart while my eyes kept closing on me. So make sure you get sufficient sleep. Doctors say we need eight hours. Some of us need more. So calculate backwards and go to sleep on time Saturday night. If your teens, parents, if your teens want a night where they're going to stay up late and just hang out goofing off with friends, uh, make sure that's Friday night. Or, or honestly, better, a school night than Saturday night because you want to communicate that we're meeting with Almighty God. This is important, so get sufficient sleep. Obviously, I'd encourage you to pray all week long for God to work here on Sunday morning. Make this a part of your regular devotional prayers. Pray, God, please, as we study the word, as we fellowship, as we sing your praises, as pastor preaches, work powerfully to save, to edify. I'd encourage you to meditate on the upcoming sermon passage throughout the week in your devotions. These are always included in the e-newsletter, so check those if you don't know what we're going to be studying. Meditate on that and maybe even come to worship Sunday morning with questions already in your mind that you'd like answered. And if I don't get to them, ask me at the door. Remind yourself that every corporate worship gathering counts for eternity. I hope you believe that. I believe that. I mean, what we're doing here is not a waste of time, and it's certainly not just, I don't know, playing church or something like that. This will last for eternity. Fruit or lack thereof will be reflected throughout all of eternity based on what's going on here today. And then one last suggestion. I'd encourage you to talk with friends and family members about what you learned from church that Sunday. Again, around the dinner table this afternoon. Are you free to talk about football and the weather? Of course. But in addition to that, you might just ask, what, what most stood out to you from the sermon? Uh, what most stood out to you from Sunday school class? Uh, were you able to encourage somebody in the Lord? Those are just a few ways that you could prepare your heart to more effectively engage with God in Sunday worship. Now, to wrap up our time this morning, I hope that this sermon has persuaded you of the goodness and the wisdom of serving God in your local church family. Serving God is why he created us. It's why Jesus saved us. We've been commanded and gifted to serve, and all of us have been gifted by the Spirit to serve in some capacity to edify the body of Christ. But there's one final thought I'd leave you with in closing. I've come to believe that for an awful lot of Christians, the reason why their Christian lives are not particularly joyful or fulfilled is because they're not serving. What do I mean by that? Well, again, I know a lot of Christians who are checking all the right boxes in other areas. You know, maybe they know the Lord, maybe they've joined the church, maybe they're reading the Bible on a regular basis, uh, maybe they're giving in the offering, you know, but their relationship with the Lord still feels kind of cold, distant, dry, academic, and they're not entirely sure why. You know anybody in that category? I mean, is that you? What I've discovered is that for some, not all, far from all, but for many, What's lacking is Christian service. They're, they're dumping all this information in, but there's no outlet to serve and encourage others. They're not really getting to know others and thinking through, how can I express my faith toward this person? How might I encourage this person in the Lord? How might I share my life with this person? It's all sort of this pouring in, pouring into their own mind, own heart, with no outlet. Now, under those circumstances, should we be surprised if their relationship with the Lord feels kind of ingrown and stagnant? 
So take a serious look at your own life and ask yourself, is the reason I'm lacking joy because I'm not serving? And particularly not serving my family in Christ. Are there things I need to eliminate to give me time to serve my local congregation? Now, is it sin to play golf? Of course not. But if golf has taken up all your free time to the point that you can't serve your brothers and sisters at all, maybe some golf has to go. Is there maybe one thing that we talked about this morning that you should start putting into practice today that you might start serving others? I honestly believe this, that for many believers, maybe more than we'd like to admit, Christian service is the secret that they're missing to actually enjoying a fruitful Christian life. But is that you? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for this particular expression of the body of Christ. We love this church, and we love one another, and we love what you've been doing here, uh, saving souls, changing lives, bearing much fruit. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you've provided our financial needs and for the way that um, we've never really had to browbeat people into giving. Thank you for that. Uh, Lord, please do make us a healthy family of God where we truly know one another, where we bear one another's burdens, where we encourage one another in the Lord, uh, where we lift up one another in prayer. Uh, We pray that that would increasingly characterize this congregation, and as that takes place, we do pray that the world would see, be drawn to you, and give you glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.